welcome you online, wherever you're worshiping from. We're so thankful you've carved out these moments to be with us and all of you in the room. Last week, we kicked off this series called Difference Makers, and we talked about what it means to be an aircraft carrier kind of church. When we gather, we're gathering as a family, as a community of God, and when we leave, we live and enter, we leave and enter the mission field, wherever that might be, and we come back and we celebrate faith in all that God has done. And today, I want to tell you about the most impactful, perhaps one of the most impactful things we can do as we live out the mission of God and we join God on his mission. And it's simply the power of our changed story, the power of our life story that's been transformed by God. Regardless of who you are, whatever cultural differences maybe that people have in the world, difference in belief systems or in worldviews, we are intimately connected to one another through the power of story. I imagine maybe some of the best conversations you had this week, maybe with a family member, a coworker, maybe with a total stranger you had just met, came through the form of telling a story. Stories have a way of taking the details, the, the facts and the events of our life and making it relatable, memorable, and even emotional for a person who was not in that story with you. Stories communicate shared pain, victories and obstacles and failures and wins. It unites us, makes us human, makes us a part of an incredible story. And in fact, I think some of the modern, modern advances like social media and other things, they work because it's simply a platform to tell stories. If you're a believer in Jesus, we, all of us, our lives are comprised of many stories, countless stories. But for those who are in Jesus, our life centers around one story. It's the story of Jesus. Our main story, our leading story, our life story is about how Jesus changed our life. So part of our story may be how we were before Jesus. And then it's about how he met us, the people he used, the things in our life, the circumstances that he used to meet us where we were. And then there's a story of how we daily live in him and for him, daily being empowered and transformed by his grace. Our story is about the story of Jesus and how it's drastically transformed our life. So as we think about our story and how God uses our story in the world, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. And here in Mark 5, we're going to encounter a man whose story was radically changed with just a few moments with Jesus. In Mark 4, Mark records for us the storm that Jesus and his disciples are in as they leave Capernaum and they're headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and a huge storm ensues and the disciples are panicking for their lives while Jesus is fast asleep. He loved those naps on a boat for some reason. He is out and then he finally wakes up and as the boat is about to sink, Jesus just commands a storm and says, knock it off. Okay, he used the words, peace, be still, but I like to think it of, you know, just stop. And immediately it did. The storm ceased and the waves were calm. And Mark is teaching us Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah. He has all power even over nature. Even the wind and the sea obey his voice. Now they come to Mark 5 and Jesus will calm another storm. But not a storm on the sea, but a storm in the life of a man. And this storm is even more violent and vicious. So Mark 5 opens up like this in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region 
of the Gerasenes. The other side, if you look at this map, is the Decapolis where Jesus has left Capernaum and they've crossed to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So they've landed somewhere here. Some of your translations would say the region of Gerasenes. This is Gerasa. Some of your translations may say the region of uh, uh, the Gadarenes and that's Gadara here. And it's generally in this vicinity of the Decapolis, which is a group of 10 cities on this side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Decapolis is Gentile territory. Most of the Jews on the temples are here in Jerusalem and Nazareth and all across that area. But here, this is pagan Gentile territory. And now they've come to the other side from Capernaum into Gentile territory. So immediately right off the bat, this is a scandalous story. What's Jesus with a group of Jewish disciples doing in the region of the Gasserine, uh, of the Gerasenes? So he continues in Mark 5, verse 2. As soon as he got out of the boat, he meaning Jesus, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Uh, This is most likely the view of the shoreline that Jesus and his disciples were docking in on this northeastern side or southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And across the shoreline, uh, there there are hills, steep hills. And if you look closer, there are tombs etched inside of those hills. And this is what ancient tombs looked like, a little bit different than our modern day graveyard. But this is the way the tombs were etched into the side of the hills. And here, as Jesus and his disciples dock and Jesus gets out of the boat, there is a man that Mark says had an unclean spirit who came from the tombs, meaning he lived inside the tombs. Okay, this is not the friendly greeter you're hoping to see on the beach after a life-threatening storm. But here's this man coming from the tomb to meet Jesus. And notice how Mark records the condition of this man's life. This is the before of his life. He lived in the tombs. He didn't just come from the tombs. He lived there. And no one was able to restrain him anymore. Not even with a chain. Because he often had been bound with shackles and chains but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is in agony. He is in pain. He is hopeless. He is so strong that no one can subdue or tame him. You put a chain around him, one flex, and it just pops right off. This is a scary man. This is a man you tell your kids, don't ever go near him. Or you threaten him, or you threaten the kids with him. Okay, if you don't eat your vegetables, I'm calling this man, right? It's funny how we do both sides of that. But this man is so strong because he possesses an evil spirit. And we're going to read not just one, but many demonic spirits that cause him to harm himself and cut himself with stone. So you can, as you see him, you can see the fresh wounds and blood just gushing out of him. And Mark says that night, day and night, he is crying out from the tombs. So if you lived in that vicinity, you could hear him howling like a coyote, sometimes we hear that in the Carrollton area, crying out, out loud out of his pain and agony. I think he lived in the tombs because he wishes he were dead. It's the extent of his agony and pain. He just can't get away from his misery, this stronghold that's got a hold of him. 
Notice in verse 2, Mark says that Jesus got out of the boat. It doesn't say all of them. It just says Jesus. Now, it could be all of them, but Mark explicitly says that just Jesus got out of the boat. And I think it's because the disciples saw him running to them, and they're like, no, thanks. We're going to stay in the boat, Jesus. We've been through enough today. We're going to hang out in the boat. In fact, I know that the, these Jewish disciples didn't want to get out of the, the boat because everything around the story and the setting screams, unclean, unclean, unclean. And if these disciples of Jesus touched anything or were around anything that was unclean, they would have to go at least for seven days through ceremonial cleansing. And here in the story, it's unclean times four. Here you have this man that has demons, demonic spirits. So that's pretty unclean. They don't want to be around that. Second of all, they're in Gentile territory. They do not want to be here. They're wondering, why are we docking here? Gentile territory. It's pagan worship. Third of all, this man is from the tombs and they're getting out in the midst of the tombs. And for a Jewish person to indirectly or directly touch a dead body or be anywhere near, let alone pagan Gentile dead bodies, unclean. And lastly, you know what? We're about to meet a few pigs. And by a few, I mean a few thousand pigs. And that's not kosher. If there's anything unclean, it's not pigs. So the disciples are like, all right, Jesus, you do your thing. We're going to stay where it's clean and safe. At least there's no storm. We'll hang out here. But the setting of the story is that Jesus intentionally, willfully steps out of the boat and into every layer of uncleanness you can imagine. Jesus was not afraid of the unclean because the unclean doesn't make him unclean. He makes it clean. See, think about this. Right after the story, you have the account of the women with the issue of blood. Just if you keep reading down Mark 5, it's the women with the issue of blood touching the hem of the garment of Jesus. And by that story itself, it's the same message. Jesus isn't afraid of those who are unclean. Because Mark is undoubtedly teaching us Jesus is in the business of cleansing the unclean. He doesn't get afraid, doesn't get disgusted. No, he comes to us and he meets us in our brokenness, in our sinful condition. And he says, I've come for you. I'm getting out of the boat with you in mind. So while the disciples are on the boat and staying on the boat, perhaps Jesus gets out of the boat and he lets this unclean man in an unclean territory run to him. Notice what happens next in the story. Mark 5, verse 6, when he saw Jesus, this man from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him, my name is Legion. He answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. This possessed man sees Jesus, and what does he immediately do? He runs to Jesus and kneels. He bows before Jesus. And that word is proskuneo, which is literally the Greek word for worship. Demons hate everything about God, but at the sight of Jesus, they can't help but worship him. No power, no influence over Jesus. They can't but bend their knees in view of who he is. And this is a preview of what Paul would say to us in Philippians 2, that every knee 
on heaven, in heaven, on earth, and passes under the earth, meaning these very demonic spirits. Every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. This is a preview of the coming attractions of that day. This demonic spirit bows and worships Jesus. I love the fact that he knows or they know who Jesus is and says, Jesus, son of the most high God. See, across the earthly ministry of Jesus, most people didn't know Jesus for his truest identity. Even the religious leaders missed it. But this demon has proper theology. Like he knows exactly, precisely who Jesus is. Jesus would ask him, what is his name? And the spirit inside of him would cry, legion, for we are many. The word region is a military term, and it talks about an army unit of between 3,000 to 6,000 men. So the word legion means thousands, up to 6,000 men in an army unit. So we don't know if this this guy had 6,000 demons or just several thousands or hundreds, but we know there's a severe stronghold of demonic presence in this man's life. So notice what happens next in this story. A large herd of pigs were there feeding on the hillside. Remember that shoreline with the hills and there's a feeding area on top of it. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. That is a weird part of the story, isn't it? So many theories around this. Okay, what is this thing doing here? First of all, Jesus didn't drown the pigs, y'all. People get so mad. Jesus drowned. The demons did that. Don't blame Jesus. He gave permission to the demons to leave, and they entered them. Some people said the demons got a piggyback ride into the lake. (laughs) You'll get that later. But it is fascinating what's happening here. Did you know that pigs actually know how to swim? Yeah, Google it. It's fascinating. They can swim really good. They can doggy paddle all day long. They're pretty buoyant. They got a little extra stuff. They can swim all day long. So I'm thinking, why do they drown? I don't know. There's some fears around that, but there is something fascinating happening even with the pigs. See, I think Jesus is sending a powerful message to his followers that his kingdom is at hand and the inbreaking of God's kingdom is disrupting, it is turning upside down the religious, commercial, and political strongholds of their day. See, pigs were offered in ceremonial sacrifices to pagan gods. God is saying, I'm shifting the very religious injustices of our day. Pigs were then sold off and remains were sold off for incredibly high expensive costs as a luxury piece of meat. Not only that, there's this political military symbolism here. See, in the Decapolis, that region on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, there, were, there was a certain legion or an army of Roman imperial army that were stationed there in the Decapolis that reported directly to Rome. They were called the Legio Ten Fratensis. Legio meaning legion, ten meaning the and for tensus. And this was the army that, that brought incredible pain to Christ followers all around that region, especially when Mark is writing this gospel and followers of Jesus are under the tyranny of this evil emperor and a regime they're enduring in faith, but many are having to pay the price of their faith. And through excavations, we're able to dig up the very seal of this particular army near the Decapolis and this is the seal of their power and emblem of their strength. L-E-G meaning legion. 
X for the 10 and F for pretensis. And the symbol of their power is a pig. It's a boar. It's a pig. That represented that army, that legion's power and might. So whether Jesus did this intentionally or it just kind of happened, the demons leave and drowned 2,000 symbols of that legion, that army. So I think as followers of Jesus are reading this and they're going through immense persecution and suffering, they're thinking, you know what? This kingdom of Jesus is here to stay. The Roman tyranny, the Roman empire will not have its last word. Jesus is here. And guess what? Roman emperors have come and gone. And the church of Jesus is here. Jesus is reigning. He is ruling because he's turned the world upside down. And he's freeing captives and he's setting people free. So this man gets freed of thousands of demonic spirits. And that whole thing with the pigs happened. It's a sight to see. So notice what happened, especially with those who were taking care and feeding the pigs. Verse 14 of Mark 5 says, The man who tended them ran off and reported in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been, past tense, had been demon-possessed, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. That was a fascinating part of the story. Then they began to beg him, meaning Jesus, to leave their region. Notice the transformation, first of all, to this man who was formerly demon-possessed just a few moments ago, not hours, not days, not years, just a few moments with Jesus, and he is free. Just 30 minutes ago, he was agonizing and in pain and hurting himself and crying out, howling at night under the tyranny of thousands of demonic spirits inside of him. Couldn't be chained or subdued by any means. But Jesus meets him. With just one word, he is free. And now he's there, calm. Mark says, sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. Sitting, dressed, in his right mind. You know what this says? This says that no one is ever outside of the reach of God to save and transform. Amen. Amen. There is no irredeemable person in the world. Maybe you got somebody in mind that says, well, anyone but them. But do they have 6,000 demons? Probably not, but this man did, and he was freed. Maybe you're hearing me, and you're thinking, man, I I don't know if Jesus will ever accept me. I don't know if he could freed me. I've done too much. I've got too much guilt, too much shame. I've hurt too many people. I've damaged too many relationships. Am I too far gone? And the answer, my friend, is no. Jesus gets out of the boat for you. He crossed the chasm of heaven and earth called the Incarnation. And he came to us who were so sinful and broken and dead in our sins. And he says, I'm here to make you clean. I'm here to free you. I'm here to liberate you. I will drive out the enemy and I will call you by your name. This man had never been asked what his name was and the spirit inside of him responded. And maybe you identify with something that is inside of you, a stronghold. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to expel the legion and restore your true identity as my son, my child, whom I love. 
This man is radically transformed. I love that Mark says he is now dressed, implying he probably wasn't dressed before. And of course, in ancient times, and I think still today, last time I checked, nakedness was a form of shame. I think about in Genesis 3 when sin entered the story and Adam and Eve realized they were naked and felt shame. And what did God do? He offered the first sacrifice. And with the skin of an animal, he clothed Adam and Eve so that the shame would be covered. I can't help but imagine in this story, Jesus is the one that got out of the boat and this Previously naked, undressed man is now dressed. I wonder how did he get dressed? Could it have been that Jesus took off his own outer garment and wrapped this man with his cloak? It's just no more shame. You're free. And I'm putting my own clothes on you. A picture of the gospel where Jesus meets us in our brokenness and shame, and he says, you don't have to try to clothe yourself. Here's my garment of righteousness, my perfect account on your behalf. You are clothed, and you never have to be ashamed again, because you're clothed in me, in Christ, finally and fully. This man has gone through an incredible transformation, but it's odd that those who would now come and see him in his right mind, sitting and dressed, now they're afraid? Somehow they're more afraid of this man sane than they were of him insane. What's up with that? I wonder if they're afraid because when they saw this man's freedom, they were confronted of their own bondage. When they experienced or saw at least this man's deliverance, They're met with their own enslavement and now they've got a choice. Do we let Jesus into our region? Do we let him change us? Do we let him free us? Or do we chase the pigs of our life? They were more concerned with the pigs they lost and the freedom that this man experienced. Perhaps because they realized their own wickedness and instead of letting Jesus in, they pushed him out to the point of leaving the region. Don't do that to Jesus. Maybe you see somebody who was once in darkness and now they're in light and you're pushing God away. You're pushing them away. Jesus is saying, I can do the same for you. I can take you from where you are to where I want you to be and transform you radically from the inside out. I can save you, forgive you, redeem you, and transform you. So these people from the town are mad at this man's freedom and they cause Jesus to leave. And then notice what happens in the text. As he was getting, meaning Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. So this man is asking Jesus, let me remain with you. And that word remain is the word abide, the same word that Jesus used to invite his disciples to come and stay with him. And this is a noble request. Jesus, let me just come with you on the boat. And obviously all of us would say, yes, what an incredible success story as a marketing tool for the ministry of Jesus. Of course, this man should go with Jesus, but notice how Jesus responds. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home. Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. (laughs) 
So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and how they were all, and they were all amazed. This man so wanted to go with Jesus, just jump back on the boat with a band of disciples and go with Jesus. But Jesus, I've got something else in mind for you. He says, I know you want to be physically with me, but I want you to be physically with those who are apart from me, who don't know me, who don't know this good news yet. So go home. Go home to your family, go home to your friends, go home to your coworkers, your networks of influence, and simply tell them. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Don't argue, don't debate, just tell them what? Tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you. Tell them how he forgave you, how he freed you. Tell them who you used to be and the mercy of God that he has extended to your life. And that's what this man did. And the Bible says all across Decapolis, these 10 cities, he went and found anyone he could and told them, hey, you remember me? You remember my story? You remember how agonizing and terrorizing I was? You remember how I used to hurt myself? In fact, look at my own scars. But can I tell you about Jesus who had mercy on me? They were amazed. This man wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus had a plan to use his story. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating that Mark records three accounts of Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis in this region. And the first one is here in Mark 5, where Jesus meets with this one man. In Mark 5, Jesus meets with one. And then in Mark 7, Jesus comes back to Decapolis, and there's a small group of people that Jesus meets with. So Jesus goes from one to a small group in Mark 7, and their deaf ear is opened. But then in Mark 8... In the Decapolis, where three chapters ago you had one person and then a small group, now Jesus meets with over 4,000 people. And that's the feeding of the 4,000 that happens in the same area. Now, we don't know if that's 4,000 men plus women and men or women and children, but we know Mark records that around 4,000 people were there. And the only way for 4,000 people... To be there was from people from all over the 10 cities, the Decapolis, to have been expecting Jesus. They made a journey. How could that be? How could they go from three chapters ago not knowing anything about Jesus to now a gathering of at least 4,000 people? It's because this man in Mark 5 did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He went home, he told a story, he told the story of God's mercy. And he says, if you ever get a chance to meet Jesus, you got to meet him. If Jesus ever comes to Decapolis, you got to be there waiting for him. And they believed him because they believed his story. They knew who he was. And the change in the story because of one. This one man's obedience in three chapters leads to more than 4,000 people being introduced, eagerly waiting for Jesus. Here's what I want you to walk away from this passage, that Jesus works in your story and he works with your story. Just like this man's life, he steps into your story, whatever that might be, however in bondage that might be, or addiction or confusion, it might be he steps into your story and he doesn't just want to save you, he wants to free you. He wants to bring healing, dress you, clothe you, empower you with the spirit. He works in your story, but then he works with your story. Meaning he uses your story and he sends you on a mission to, send, to, to tell other people about the mercy you've experienced works in your story. He works 
with your story. Now, I know you're thinking, well, this is a pretty dramatic story in Mark 5. I mean, this man had demons and all kinds of craziness, and people knew that. Of course people will believe him. My story isn't like that. Like, I don't have a drugs to Jesus story. I don't have a I came to Jesus in prison kind of story. I've just got a more of a normal life. I came to Jesus at the age of eight or whatever. But here's the truth. You might not have lived in a graveyard like this man, but you two were dead without Jesus. In fact, that's worse. You might not have had the exact same graveyard story or living in the tombs, but apart from Jesus, we were equally lost, broken, and dead. In fact, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, you, Christian, no matter who you are, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Apart from Christ, we are only alive to sin and dead to Jesus. The strongholds, yes, they might have looked different for you. Might have not been a legion of demons, but it could have been the stronghold of anger and pride and ego. Could have been the stronghold of lust or pornography or cheating or some addiction that you couldn't get away from and somehow you find your familiarity, your strength in the strongholds of your life. And you lived in the tombs, meaning in the secrecy and in the shadow of sin, unable to experience life. For me, my stronghold was religion and self-righteousness. We have a stronghold, something that Jesus saved us from because apart from him, no matter the narrative of our specific story, we were dead, Paul says. And then in verse four, but God, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. And this is what the man in Mark 5 found, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. What happened to this man? He's alive. He is seated with Christ, clothed in a righteousness. And that's what happened to you. But why? What's the next part of the verse? So that, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness in Christ Jesus. The so that for this man was go home and tell people how much mercy I've had on your life. And you've got to sow that as well. I know we all want to join the band of disciples and get back in the boat and be physically with Jesus right now. But Jesus is saying, I want you to be physically with those who are spiritually apart from me. I want you to go and tell your story. I want you to tell people the mercy because what impact could your changed life story have in the world? Here at Bentry, we call those moments sent conversations. Those are the moments we encounter people who are apart from Jesus, just like this man went all over to capitalists to tell people it's your sent conversation. You know what this qualm I have with this man? Jesus sent him on a mission, but he never went to seminary like had no theological training. He never listened to a full sermon. Like he needs to listen to a few sermons. Like no evangelism podcast or discipleship resources. Like this guy has no training, but yet he was sent because all he needed was his story. 
All he needed was a fresh dose of the mercy of God. And you didn't just receive mercy one day. You received the mercy of God day in and day out, 24-7. If you're breathing, you are an active participant in the grace of God. So if this guy could go on a mission and be sent with purpose, so can you. We're sent on a mission to tell people about the mercy of God. That's a sent conversation. A sent conversation is an intentional spiritual conversation with someone who is not a follower of Jesus. I could be beginning a relationship with somebody with the desire to share Christ with them. I could be asking somebody about their spiritual journey and they're looking for ways that the story of Jesus meets their story. It could be inviting somebody to church with you to hear the message of who Jesus is. It could be praying for your waitress or waiter. It could be listening to somebody who's going through a real difficult time and say, you know what? I know you don't believe in Jesus, but can I just pray for you? Can I just go ask God to meet you? That's a scent moment. It's a scent conversation. It's the version of going home, going wherever you go and telling people about the mercy, not debate, not argue, but just tell them what the Lord has done for you. Last March, a few months ago, this March, our team leaders were praying, God, give us an audacious, clear goal. But how many send conversations we can pray for our church body to have as, as a community between this August and next July, which is our ministry year. And here's our goal as a church body. We want to have 4,000 sent conversations between now and July of 2024. 4,000. 4,000 faith conversation in the life of our church through you all, through all of us, total 4,000 conversations that have been had in our community, wherever you live. Now, I know that seems like a big number because that's about 76 conversations a week. And we're already two weeks behind because it's the middle of August, so we got some catching up to do. But did you know that there are over, over 4,700 people, members and attendees who call Bentry home? 4,700 people. So really what that just means is that each and every one of us, we just have one faith conversation with someone who's not our follower of Jesus from now until July, and then we would have already beaten this goal. I think we could even do more than that because it ought to be the daily rhythm of our life, telling people who don't yet know Jesus about the mercy we've experienced, who Jesus is and how he's changed our life. So this is what I'm asking, 4,000 goals from now till next July. The body of Christ here at Bedtree is stepping courageously into these moments. Now, they don't mean conversions because we don't measure that God does that. We can measure our obedience, and God does his incredible work in moving in the hearts of Now, we pray for hundreds, if not thousands of people to come to faith in Christ as you share. But what we can do is boldly, courageously enter into conversations about Jesus in the sphere of our Life, we can do that. As I was finishing the sermon last night, something hidden in plain sight just snapped out at me. Like I said, it was like in March or April that we set this 4,000 goal. And, and it was just a few weeks ago, the passage, this passage in Mark 5, all the way to Mark 8 was impressed on my heart to teach and introduce this 4,000 cent conversation goal. Then I saw these two set of 4,000s. 4,000 people as a result of this man in Mark 5 who are introduced to Jesus. That this one man's obedience to Jesus perhaps gathered at least 4,000 people in the Decapolis to hear Jesus, to meet Jesus, to experience the miracle of Jesus. And then we are here praying for 4,000 sin conversations.
Isn't that just like God to say, you know what? I've got a goal in mind. I'm going to bring all these together. I'm going to bring this passage together so that perhaps we can have a Mark 8 moment in a year. 4,000 people in our community introduced or reintroduced to who Jesus is because we went and told them. Here's a few encouragements I want to give you as you step into these sent conversations. Sent conversations do not require a change of direction, but a change of intention. It's not about changing the direction of your life and moving to some country out of the world, out of this country. Maybe that is some of your story, but it's really about a change of intention. And second of all, sent conversations are less about the additions of our life and more about the intersections of our life. It's not about adding something to your already busy day or busy schedule, it's looking at the intersections of your life where you meet people who may not know Jesus. At the grocery store, in carpool, when you're walking your dog, wherever it may be, in your school, in the normal intersections of your life, could you be intentional, prayerful, and ask God for a scent moment? Could you see with the eyes of your Savior? Feel the heart of God for people who are apart from Him. Just look at the daily intersections of our life differently with a scent filter that I've been sent on a mission to tell people about the mercy that I've experienced. Can we do this? Yes. yes. Four of you, thank you. Thank you for your yes. Can we do this? Yes. Amen. Now here's how we're going to gather and celebrate the sent conversations you have. Uh, if you go on our, on our website, bentry.org slash pursuing our community, Pursuing our community or just pursuing, it'll take you to a homepage where it gives you resources and information, and you can record your sent conversation. Or you can scan the feedback code, the QR code on the feedback, and it'll take you to a page where you can share your sent conversation. You can do that online. Or when you're gathering on the weekend by the Tree of New Life, there'll be digital boards. You can just put a ticker of how many sent conversations you've had. And if you choose to, you can share your story with us. We will love to celebrate those stories and, and celebrate the milestones we're reaching on this 4,000 journey of sent conversations. And as in the next few weeks, we're gonna, you're going to see a root system develop on the tree of new life because you can't have new leaves on the tree without roots being built. And the sent conversations you're having will form a beautiful root system that we believe and trust that the Spirit's going to use to reap a harvest of salvation here in our day. Would you bow your heads with me today? I'm asking for you to be emboldened by the Spirit of God to look for the intersections and simply go tell people what Jesus has done. I know maybe there's somebody under the sound of my voice in this room or online. You're still living in the tombs. You're still defined by your stronghold. And I want you to know today is the day of your salvation. Jesus has come for you. He's gotten off the boat 2,000 years ago, entered our story. And he offers himself as your savior, as your freedom. Don't push him away any longer. Let him come in. Let him change you. So in this moment, would you surrender your heart to Christ? By faith, receive him. Confess your sins. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. That I've been living my own life, being the boss of my own story. I give it over to you. No conditions, just change me. Forgive me. I receive you as Lord of my life, as Savior. I believe you came, you died, you were buried, you rose on the third day, and you are coming back for me. You are the Son of God, and I want to follow you. Just tell him. 
He never turns away a cry of repentance. The story was preserved for us to give us a window into the freedom that only Jesus can bring. Maybe there are some of you who God is bringing people to your mind and you've crossed them off and you've kind of said, maybe it's, it's too late for them. You begin to pray. Look for sent moments and conversations. Pursue your community wherever that is. Go home and tell people. Maybe it begins with your own family, children, husbands, wives. Tell them about the mercy of God in your life. Let your story of life change be celebrated from home onward. So Jesus, we give you this goal. We know that you'll bless what you're doing. And so we want to just join in because you're constantly pursuing people. You're sending us to people and places with the good news of how you have had mercy on us. So use us, embolden us, give us moments and courage to obey and share Jesus with the world that we're living in. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said together, amen. Come on, amen. Amen, amen. Let's give Jesus a thanks for his word.